This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Episode 61, Chris Conroy, Fisheries Bailiff, Scotland. Pretty exciting podcast here for me. We are going across the pond. And I will tell you, 
that I like saying that a lot, and you'll hear that a lot in this episode, that word across the pond. It's a first for Warden's Watch. But this uh, lead-in, John Norris isn't with us. He is on his way to the Baja 500. So you guys, racing fans, desert fans, he is going to be competing down there. So I hope we can all cheer him on from a distance. And go, John. Have fun. Get dirty and win with his team, Monster Energy Drink. That's just a great opportunity, a great thing that he's doing down there. Pretty exciting stuff. But getting back to Chris Conroy, Scotland. Boy, it's, this is exciting. I am I'm looking forward to this one. And as you're going to find out, he covers a very interesting part of Scotland. I'm not going to give it away. I can't give it away at this point. I do want to talk about Patreon, though. I want everybody to know Warden's Watch is on Patreon, too. It's not just the Thin Green Line. You have two podcasts here that converge in Patreon, but it's a video. So when we interview, like Chris Conroy, his video will be on there. You can see that the Scottish Fisheries Bailiff live, or I guess it's not really live, but it's it's taped. So we, we conduct a lot of these interviews via Zoom. So we record the video and we put it on our Patreon site and people are, are liking it. They're liking seeing these interviews. I'm a visual guy. I like to see things too. I get it. I understand it. So for five bucks a month, you can watch these. You can engage as much as we do. You can be part of that interview. It's really, really cool. It's really cool that you can step into uh, an interview and watch it and get a feeling for who these people are, see the backgrounds behind them, because it's usually you know about them too. So episode 61, without further ado, I will uh, let you guys listen to this podcast. Really appreciate you listening to Warden's Watch. Please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or where you listen to podcasts. If you can leave a review, please leave a review because it just points other people that this is a good podcast. It's an interesting podcast. It's a conservation podcast. It's about conservation law enforcement. It's about wildlife. Uh, it's about all kinds of things that we really care about. And people of like minds just uh, flock together. So if we can share this information, we can grow this podcast and make it a huge success like you guys are doing for us right now. Greatly appreciated. Again, Chris Conroy. So on this episode of Warden's Watch, I am wicked excited. That's a New England term, wicked. Uh, But we're going across the pond to Scotland with Chris Conroy who has been doing fisheries management and protection for 25 years and has been 12 years in Scotland. And you are in a very famous area as far as fisheries goes, aren't you, Chris? Yeah, so we, we're lucky enough to cover the waters that flow into the famous Loch Ness. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, quite a few people know about that. Yes. No, you're definitely uh, famous, or, or should I say that Loch Ness is famous. And I, I think I had to ask you last time through, we, we did a, like a pre-interview so I could have some, an intelligent conversation with you over what you do and how you do it and stuff. And uh, one of my questions, I think halfway through is, uh, what's a lock? Because when, when I think of locks, I think of, uh, you know, the locks for ships coming up through. Yeah. So, so a lock in Scotland is, uh, is a Scottish name for a lake or a still water. So, we, we do have locks in canals as well, which is spelt with a K on the end, whereas loch, as in Loch Ness, is spelt with a H on the end. But it's basically the Scottish word for, for a loch, for a lake. So, Does that carry over to any other country? I mean, do England's call, England call them lakes and, or locks? So England is, is lakes, and in uh, Ireland, they're lochs as well. So okay. um, I think spelt differently. But um, yeah, but it's, it's very much a, a loch as in L-O-C-H is definitely a Scottish thing for sure. That's that's very interesting, and to get that r- right away, the thing that caught me was, uh, you know, the fisheries bailiff thing. Just just grabbed my attention one day, and I, I just reached out to you on via Instagram and said, "Hey, you know, I'd love to have you. Love to talk to you. Uh, very, it seems like very different. So, can you compare wildlife and considering fish, wildlife, law enforcement in Scotland and the UK, because you've, you've done both, to the United States. Can you do a little comparisons for, especially for my listeners that are officers on this side of the pond? I love saying that too, by the way, this side of the pond. 
That's yeah. <laughs> definitely. Yeah. So, so, um, yeah. So, a water bailiff is is the um, legal term for a fisheries enforcement officer in Scotland, and um, so a police a police officer is called a constable, whereas a water water bailiff is somebody who specifically works under the salmon and freshwater fisheries legislation. So, we don't in in Scotland we don't have wildlife officers as such. Um, we do the fish. Uh, the police do the rest of the wildlife, so the deer and big game, etc. We have police wildlife um, crime officers who, who they're normal police officers, but they have a specialism as well. So they will deal with that. And we work very closely with them. But yeah, so the term water bailiff has been around for a long, long time. So I've seen records back to the 14th century using the term. And it, the, the role has varied quite a bit over the years. Definitely in 14th century England, there were, there were water bailiffs. And in Scotland... Water bailiffs, as they currently stand, have been around since the 1868 legislation, which is when the the network of fishery boards who who I work for um, was was um, set up by Queen Victoria at the time, actually. So, so yeah, a bit of history there. Yeah, fascinating. And and you shared a bit of history over uh, water bailiffs back in 1933. I think you told me that you, you that one of the yeah. bailiffs uh, confirmed or reported. Because uh, everybody, you're in Loch Ness, and I, uh, that's going to be like the number one question on, on the tips of people's brains. So if you could share that story, because that was really cool. <laughs> yeah, so so as you can imagine, we spend a lot of time watching Loch Ness for illegal activity, illegal fishing. And um, back in 1933, there was a water bailiff for the Ness District Salmon Fishery Board, which is, again, who, who I work for. Um, a guy called Alex Campbell, who um, made one of the probably the most important sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. Um, so he was at Fort Augustus, which is uh, a town at the west end of the loch. The loch's, um, you know, big old, it's just 23 miles long, I think it is in miles. Um, it's a big old body of water. And he was sat looking for illegal fishing and saw what he thought was um, uh, a, a big animal with a long neck. And that was one of the first sightings of, of the Loch Ness Monster. Now, whether he saw it, I, I can't say for sure, but he saw something for sure. So it's certainly a credible guy, given his position. It probably gave it a lot more weight than the normal uh, report, huh? Probably, probably yeah. Um, but again, we get we get tied in with the Loch Ness Monster a lot. I think I mentioned as well, we had um, a report, I think it was in the 90s, before my time here. There was a deer, a roe deer found on the south side of Loch Ness. We call it the dark side of the loch because it doesn't get as much sun. And then... And there was a, a roe deer found by the side of the road with a big tooth stuck in it, apparently about this sort of six inches long. And there was a story in the national newspapers about the deer. Nessie had killed the deer. Um, but turn, and, and apparently the water bailiffs had found it. And having spoken to the guys who were there at the time, we had nothing to do with it. And <laughs> it was it was an, an antler from another roe deer that was in the side side of the deer. So things can grow arms and legs a little bit as well. There, there is no doubt in being uh, game wardens, we've seen that uh, all kinds of stuff. I've had reports, uh, cougars, and, and, and I never say never too. Do you, Chris? I mean, because the day I say this will you never know. happen, tomorrow, you know, they'll have footage of the Loch Ness Monster and you'll be a guy running the camera or something. So I never... <laughs> I never say never, and that would be really cool for ratings on uh, the Warden's Watch podcast if that happened, by the way. Um, (laughs) But I do never say never because the next day it'll happen. We have a lot of that with cougars on the East Coast. Will cougars eventually get here? Absolutely. When are they going to arrive? I don't know. But are they here now? Probably not. But am I ever going to say no? No, no, you can't do that. Mm -hmm. But, yeah, so it's it's, it's very interesting. There's a lot of local people who – really strongly believe that there's something in the locket i mean it is a big deep body of water and and how deep you see you do see struck um well it's in it's 700 plus feet deep i think it is it's deep, it's it's very very deep that's deep in the deepest part i should I, I should know how deep it is but yeah it's 700 plus foot deep and it's and it's um it's very dark as well and you, you get very you, it's it, it gets some very weird um uh, uh, currents in it and weather conditions surrounding it so it can be a very it is a very mysterious place and you do see things you do see strange things um particularly you know dark nights you and quite quite a lot of the rivers are very have a lot of riparian trees and the trees fall in and the trees go into the lock and you'll see trees rolling down as they move down the lock and there's all kinds of things and we get seals in there as well oh. um it's a freshwater lock but the seals will come up the river ness and go all the way up to the top end of 
of the lock. So, um, you know, they th- people quite often see those as well, which can confuse people. Yeah, no, it sounds like there's all kinds of th- things going on at the nest. So that's pretty cool. What kind of fisheries are in there? Yeah, so the the main fishery in in our area is salmon, the Atlantic salmon. Um, so uh, that's primarily what we're here for is to protect the salmon. It's worth, I think, it's worth explaining who I work for. We yes, we, we are quite, yeah, we're quite a strange body. We we're a, a non-governmental statutory body. So. We don't work for the government, but we have statutory powers. Um, we're not a business. Um, we are an, a, a fishery board, and there's 42 fishery boards across Scotland. So um, they wow. they are constituted under the yeah they're, they're constituted under the Salmon and Freshwater Fisheries Act, um, and there's various things that we have to comply with, and we're and we are governed by the Scottish government, um, uh, but we don't work directly for them, and. Um, so, and the, the board, the fishery board itself, um, is made up of representatives of the owners of the fishing rights. So, in Scotland and the UK, the fishing is generally owned by people. It's not there's, there's no there's, well, there's very little public fishing as such, mm-hmm. and and so um, that that's that's who who we work for. Um, so, so basically, the primary role is is to manage salmon and sea trout, which are the migratory or the sea run browns that we get here as well. But we also have um, a really good brown trout fishery, um, particularly in Loch Ness. You have what you call ferox trout, which are, I think they're the same as you as American lock trout. You call them, I think, in America. They're big, um, piscivorous, you know, pre- cannibalistic um, brown trout, which grow to thirty pound plus. Mm. Um, and then we have um, we have eels. But there's no there's no fishery uh, fishing for eels is completely. Uh, illegal in scotland for conservation purposes that's a european eel and we have arctic char in there which nobody really fishes for um so i think of the other species we do have some introduced species up here we have the perch um european perch um which is not native to our part of the uk uh, and we have northern pike as well which um there's a debate about whether they're native here or not um but there's some really good pike fishing here they're really big like 40 pounds um pike as well in the in the system um so yeah but our our primary role is to protect the salmon mm. so me as a u.s citizen go over to scotland i want to fish uh the nest so is that possible yes it is yeah so what you would need to do um we don't we don't have a license system in scotland like you have in the in the u.s so there's no rod license as such and they do in the rest of the uk they have they have in england and wales they do have a, a licensing system um in Scotland, it's more about uh, having the, the the legal right and or written permission to fish. So what you would do, you would get in contact with one of the fisheries that owns the fishing rights, and they would give you permission to fish their bit of the of the river system or the loch. Um, and that's basically how it would work. I think I'm, I'm not sure how it would work in America because you have some private fisheries and some public fisheries. Is that right? Correct. In the U.S., usually you know private yeah. fisheries yeah. are very small. Less than ten acres, or of a pond, or something like that. So, but yeah. everything else is pretty much public water. Your rivers in New Hampshire, any lake over ten acres. I'm sure that varies across the country, but the water is usually deemed yeah. public access. Sometimes the ground underneath the water is not, depending what the deed said uh, and how far the deed goes back. Yeah. It's, it's it's very interesting when you start looking at, like you said, some of those water rights and and things like that. Because uh, yeah. It just goes back. I'm sure those quite fisheries things, those licensings probably go back way back, don't they? They do, yeah. And it, and to make it more confusing, salmon are dealt with, salmon and sea trout, the migratory salmonids, are dealt with differently than the resident brown trout and other fish species, which we call coarse fish. So salmon and sea trout is a criminal law, whereas uh, the other species are civil law, which is, makes it more confusing. And, and in Scotland, there is a right to roam, so you can pretty much enter land wherever you want but you can't necessarily enter land to fish which makes it more confusing so um it it, it is it is pretty complicated to be quite honest so if you if any of you your um listeners do come across then the best thing to do is just check before you go fishing just to make sure you're um you're you're, you're legal yeah that <laughs> so. would be my suggestion here as well but it sounds like it's a little more liberal than uh what what what, what you guys do and stuff so so when you like, mm-hmm. I mean, you actually see somebody fishing, you'll go check their permission to be there as the fishery board. Yeah. So, yeah. So, we, so we're deemed to be water bailiff. So we, um, as I say, similar to being a police constable. It's not, it's not, we're not police constables. We have similar powers. So um, 
we are if we, our main job is if we see people rod and line fishing we'll go and check that whether they've got a permit or not and if, they, if they're fishing for salmon or sea trout without a permit that's potentially a criminal offense um so we have various powers to assist with that so we have um powers of entry so we can enter remain enter and remain upon any land on or adjoining to a water body for the purposes of detecting an offence, not we don't necessarily have to know there is an offence occurring, but we can go to check whether one is. So we have powers of entry, we have powers of search, um, powers of seizure, and we also have the power to detain individuals as well um, for any offences under the the legislation. So and that helps us to to enforce the legislation and protect the fish. To be, in in reality. Um, you know, I think as probably the the same as American game wardens, we like to educate people more than use our powers. So if we can, we'll give people a bit of advice or give them a warning, um, and we we save the uh, the the prosecutions or the charging people to to the more serious offences. No, that's that's for sure. And uh, you guys, just the equipment you carry by the pictures I've seen is a little different than what we carry on the state side here. Yeah, well, I think the big main difference is we don't carry firearms like you guys do over there. So then um, the truth is here, we well, the, the the firearms legislation is very different over here than it is in America. And the truth is we don't need to because um, access to firearms is quite limited. Um, so if 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 we um, so handguns, for example, are completely outlawed in the UK. You can't have a handgun unless you're a um, you know a, in the military or in the armed police. Um, people do have shotguns and they do have um, hunting rifles, so bolt action rifles. You can't have a. I think you can have a. You can actually you can have a semi-automatic two-two rifle, but you can't have any automatics above that. Um, and the processes you have to go to to get a rifle, um, you have to have um, quite a serious background check and security checks in your homes as well. So, the, the, although we live in where we are in the Highlands of Scotland, I think there's more firearms per per head than anywhere else in the uk but they're very tightly regulated so we very very rarely come across people with firearms in our in our role we do wear body armor because we've taken a decision that the risk with knives is quite high um everyone who goes hunting or camping generally has a knife with them um so we wear they're basically stab vests which um spike proof they are apparently they are level one handgun as well but hopefully we'll never need that so and that gives us our main protection, and we we carry um, we wear um, uh, uh, body cams as well, which are, which are quite handy for uh, recording evidence, and it also works to if you have it reduces conflict. You know, if you've got people know they're being filmed, you quite often find that it, it calms people down a little bit as well. So, um, and then we we carry handcuffs as well in case we need to detain, which we very rarely use, but we do have them in case we we need to use them as well. So, but yeah, we don't have firearms, which I think is the main difference. Mm. Yeah, and it stands right out too when when I see the pictures and stuff. You know, it jumps right out and the type that you do similar jobs. Mm-hmm. But I, I can definitely. I just uh, was teaching a class uh, for criminal justice and compared New York City to London on the number of murders. Uh, similar size cities. London was a little higher in murder rates, but uh, compared to firearms and knives, uh, it was amazing having the same amount of murders and just the the, the weapons change from handguns to knives. Not, mm-hmm. not that the murders changed at yeah. all. It was just uh, the, yeah. the, the tool yeah. that implemented it, which uh, yeah. just kind of surprised me, which, uh, you know, it's just the tool available, I think. But you're right. If you if you don't have yeah, a handgun available, you're not going to use it. No, exactly. And I think, to be, I mean, I have to say that 99.9% of the people we we come across are absolutely fine, are great people. And we have, mm. you know, 99% of the, the time is very positive interactions with people we just never know as you know and but we train heavily in conflict resolution and, and communication skills we use our our mouths more than we any other tools and that's how, that's the way we deal with things and if we were to have an issue um we work very closely with police as well and the way it works in the uk if there was to be a firearms incident which is highly unlikely but we have armed response units um spread across the uk that are seriously well trained and um carry some serious gear with them and they can get anywhere very very quickly um so if there was that kind of an incident they would you could they would call you could call upon them but that it's high, very unlikely to happen to be quite honest with you so um yeah oh that's, that's just, there's nothing wrong to... with that <laughs> yeah 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 oh well, that's great 
Uh, I would like a game warden story. I know you threw you threw me at a couple last time, but uh, you know, I, wardens watch. My listeners just love to hear stories, and I'm sure you got some on that side of the pond that are, are pretty cool because yeah. you shared one or two with me last time. Yeah, so we do. I mean, we've got a few a few from various that stand out through my career. Um, one one I was remembering the other day because we talked about this. I was thinking of you, you kind of just gets part of the day job, so you forget a lot of them. But I was thinking <laughs> back to my time working in in England, and um, we had uh, we were doing a joint patrol with the police wildlife officers down in. I used to work in Kent, um, which is on the outskirts of London. Um, you know, you've got to think London has a population of over ten million people. Mm. Scotland, the whole of Scotland has five. London, just London alone, the city has 10. So there's a lot of people there, a lot of interactions. Um, and we had a fishery there that was very high risk because we'd had um, some of our officers had been assaulted in there. So we only went in with the police and we were waiting for the police to turn up and um, a car pulled up this road and you could see the back of the car was, it was like a station wagon. It was full of junk. And I don't know if you, do you call it fly tipping in America where people dump their trash on the side of the road? Do you have a, I don't know what you would call Just it dumping. In, in America, but we call it fly dumping. We call it fly tipping here. I think it's because they tip and then fly fly away. Okay, um, it's totally illegal. Yeah, and um, it wasn't within our powers, but the organisation that we worked for at the time in England, which was a government agency, another team did. Anyway, this car drove past me. Thought he's gonna he's gonna fly tip. He's gonna dump that. Um, and then about two minutes later, the police officer arrived. So we said, right, have you have you ever nicked anyone for fly tipping or and he says no but i'd like to so we went up the road the car would the guy the two guys in the car the guy in the back was shutting the rear end the mattresses and all kinds of stuff on the side of this road um so and he's he says right can you give me some support so we positioned ourselves around this vehicle and um he's he was bent down and he was talking to the driver and i was kind of stood behind the police officer and he was talking away to this driver and i noticed he flicked his pepper spray off his off his belt and um as i say police standard police officers don't carry firearms in the uk either so pepper sprays at the time was pretty much about as much as you get in fact it wasn't pepper spray cs gas is what they use so Mm. in in small canisters so you know from your training that means you just get ready because something's not right here and he kept really calm and then he he stepped back from the car and got on his radio he looked at me and he said can i basically can have some backup and within about five minutes, there were four police officers appeared in a van and um, he got the guys out of the car and it turned out the guy in the driver's seat was sat on a kitchen knife um, under his, had it under his legs for, for protection, but had a, a kitchen knife under his legs that stolen the car. The, the, the ignition bolt was, was completely <laughs> gone. They put a screwdriver into it. Um, they, all the owner's car car owner's details including passport and everything were in the front of the car so all, all their personal effects and the back seat of the car this is the worst thing was full of syringes and um cotton and you know with blood on it where they were um heroin addicts by the looks of it and um anyway so they and it turned out both of these guys had um outstanding warrants from the met police as well so um it wasn't necessarily a fisheries incident but mm. i'm sure as the game wardens over in the in the u.s quite often you get involved in other issues but um so they took the car they arrested the two guys they took the car then we went on our patrol and the first person we caught was fishing without a lighter rod license at the time which you have in england so we checked his details and it turned out he does absconded from prison so <laughs> the next person we got was a was another um good good case so um yeah. but yeah so that's that, that that's one kind of one kind of story but I've got, you know, I've got plenty of others as well. <laughs> we were talking about thermal cameras, weren't we, the other day? Yes, because um, uh, that's, uh, I I think that's it, up and coming in the U.S. We're starting to see a lot more thermal imaging, and you've got experience with that. Yeah, so there was a, there was a time where um, up in Scotland, one, another river I used to work on further north than where I am now, and um, we had the poaching incident, and um, we were keeping out for the, keeping an eye out for these guys. And I was on the top of a hill looking down the river, under a bridge with my thermal camera and I could see this outline the shape of a of a body under the bridge stood under the bridge so I thought right I've got this guy so I screamed down the road <laughs> jumped out my car jumped under the bridge and it was a horse 
that was <laughs> stood directly facing the camera. <laughs> and it was just from the camera. That's the thing with thermal cameras. They don't, you don't always get the best view. You can get, you get the heat signature, but you don't, you can't necessarily make it out properly. But that was, um, that was another good one. I bet that was a shocker Sorry, too. I, I, as you it, turned uh, the corner and there was a horse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, that was a big heat signature. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But it looked like a person from the angle I was looking at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah. And, and you do enforcement protection as well as like management. So you're you're counting yeah. salmon. You're you're managing the salmon. You're you're doing that type of stuff too. Can you tell us about that part of your job? Yeah. So you know we're not particularly well resourced here into when in comparison to maybe the guys in the U.S. So we multitask. So by trade, I'm a bio, I'm a fish biologist. Is is my background, and um, all of the all of our team have a background in that as well. So. Um, so we do the fish monitoring, which is the electrofishing surveys for juvenile salmon. Um, we do a lot of fish tracking projects at the moment as well, looking at um, looking at the escapement of juvenile salmon from the nest system, looking for any barriers that we can uh, mitigate. Um, the nest catchment where we are has a lot of hydro dams in it, which have um, had quite an impact since the 1950s and 60s when they were built. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you have similar issues over the yes. pond as well. And it, we're only just realizing how in, people were more concerned at the time with upstream passage of fish, but they didn't really think about the salmon leaving and going back out to sea. Um, so we do we do that, and we and we also get involved in actually the mitigation works, habitat restoration, or um, uh, we have um, we have a small hatchery program here, which is a very tar- I mean, hatcheries are very controversial, but this is um, targeted at a part of the catchment that has a significant issues. Um, that are not just background issues. It has very significant issues. And we're doing a lot of genetic profiling work to inform our hatchery operation there as well. So, um, so yeah, we, we, we have a very, very varied job and we can be out doing a fish survey, then get a call and have to leave and go and deal with a poaching incident. Um, and we cover, um, I think it's what, uh, one, about 1,300 square miles of, uh, of catchment. Uh, and there's been days where we'll be right at the top of the, in the headwaters of the system doing a fish survey and we'll get a call to the estuary and we'll go all the way to the estuary and they will, they will have gone by the time we've got there and then we'll go all the way back and then we'll get a call (laughs) to go all the way back again. So um, it can be quite difficult. So what we, what we have to try and do is just be clever in how we resource our, our our small number of staff to, to manage that, you know? Um, But it's uh, it, it, that's part of the fun of the job is the, is the variety of the work we do. So it's, it keeps you interested. Yeah, and the t- topography of the nest is pretty interesting in itself, isn't it? It is. Yeah, I mean, so we we are not we're, we're pretty high. It's in the Highlands of Scotland, so it's pretty remote up here. Um, the, and um, we've got so our the river Ness discharges into the Moray Firth, as it's called, which is the estuary. And there's a city of Inverness is at the, at the where it meets the sea. So we've got an urban area. It's not particularly big. It's not a big city. It's a, it's a very small city. And then upstream from that, it's just smaller communities. Um, but the upper system is is um, is really quite remote for for our standards. It's not remote by US standards, but it's remote by our by UK standards. So you can be pretty much if you're on a patrol. We're quite often on our own as well. Um, you can be pretty isolated. Quite often you're out of mobile reception or radio reception, so um, you know it's it, 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 you have to be very careful how you operate as well. You know if you're going into, into a high risk area, but yeah, it's it, and it's you've got mountains, you've got the big loch. So Loch Ness is in the middle of everything, um, and it can take half an hour to forty minutes to get from one end of the loch to the other. Um, so um, and there's multiple tributaries that come into the loch, so big rivers that come into the loch, which we cover as well. So um, you can't cover it all in one one patrol. You have to, you know, split it up into areas or have guys in different parts of the system to make it work. Mm. Is there a commercial fishery in the nest? So, so th- there is a commercial fishery. Um, it's what you call a net and cobble fishery, which is um, a sweep net. So a cobble is a type of boat. It's a traditional salmon fishing boat. And what they do is they row the net out in a big circle and then pull it back in as quick as they can. Um, however, for the last um, seven or eight years, we've had agreements with them that they won't fish. So we've been doing um, research with them, with the, with the, the netsmen. We've got some really good netsmen here. Uh, so so there, haven't, there hasn't been a, 
a fish commercially caught in the nest system for about eight years. I think it's, I think it's eight years now. And we, ha- we have had a big decline in our in the returns of salmon, not just to our river, but across Scotland and across the North Atlantic, I think. And also the Pacific, as I'm hearing as well, is you know salmon populations are in serious decline at the moment. So um, we're all working together to try and, you know, protect what we've got. Um, so, yeah, so so theoretically there is a, there is a, a, a commercial fishery, but they haven't fished for a number of years. Mm, I just looked up a cobble boat just because I was curious. Kind of looks like our uh, yeah. Easterner, so to speak. So lobsterman type boat on a little mm-hmm. smaller scale. That's a, that was pretty interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'd never heard that term before. Yeah. So I had to, I had to Google it. So <laughs> yeah. So they willingly basically what was, yeah, I'm just I'm trying to wrap my head around a commercial fishery on a lake, mainly for salmon, or is it for anything they catch, or uh, what's the commercial fishery mainly for? So the com- the commercial fishery is a coastal fishery, so it's on the it's in the the estuary. Okay. It's not the, the, the they don't operate in the freshwater reaches, and it's gotcha. for salmon mainly, but they do catch sea trout. They do catch sea trout as well, but it's mainly for Atlantic salmon. Okay. So um um that. So, but their catches had declined significantly, um, and they were concerned about the about the status of their fish stocks as well. So, right. um, we've worked together on this. You know, it's a it's a partnership to to try and protect the fishery. Um, so, if the numbers come back up again, then they'll open again. Um, right. If there's enough salmon, then there's, there's enough for everybody. At the moment, we we are you know we are concerned about numbers right right across the North Atlantic. Um, mm. Have you seen an uptick since the, the fishery has stopped, or? Well, we, we were just discussing this today. Actually, we're looking at our catch figures for last year and comparing them to the. We've been looking at the last twenty years and the last ten years, mm-hmm. and we haven't seen an we haven't seen an increase. But if you compare our catches to other rivers, the the rate of decline has tailed off. So they're not it's not improving, but the rate of decline has right. leveled out. Right. Um, whether that's to do with the netsman or not, I don't know because there's other, a lot of other other measures in place like catch and release as well. Um, so we have. Uh, we have a, a quite a well in in Scotland it's illegal to kill a salmon before the first of April so that's that's under a regulation a Scottish government regulation that we that we police mm-hmm. um, and then after that we have a voluntary conservation policy and uh, which people stick to and that um, means up until you can't kill a salmon before the first of July and that's to protect the early running spring component mm-hmm. and then. After that, we have size limits, and we we ask that people return all females. So that is likely to have had a positive impact as well on on the on the status of the fish populations. I'm not saying everything's great with the nest because it's not. There are our catches have significantly declined from what they used to be. But what we're trying to do is just identify. We have a fisheries management plan which we're just rewriting at the moment, and that identifies the key issues and and how we can best address those. Some of them are very complicated issues others are are more simple no it's very interesting and it'll be interesting to see how it goes down because i think you're right i think we're all experiencing similar things um i think we've experienced it much before with the atlantic salmon in new hampshire uh, coming up the connecticut river you know trying to put all those fish back in having hit having hatcheries and just putting tons and tons of fish back into the tributary and hoping that it will increase. But I think the the verdict is there's something in the ocean going on that that's why these Absolutely. fish aren't returning. So, and that's kind of what you're yeah. getting that too. Yeah. So we, we're definitely marine. So, so if you look at the juvenile numbers in, say for example, the river Ness, which is the bit below is seven miles from Loch Ness to the sea is the river Ness. And that's where most of the fishing goes on, mm-hmm. um, rod and line fishing. Um, if you look, the numbers of adults have significantly declined, but the numbers of juveniles from our surveys are holding up. So that suggests that we're still above carrying capacity, which is, you know, there's only a certain amount of area that the fish can, can utilize. Mm-hmm. And it's like having with the, the analogy we always use is if you have cows in a field, if you get over a certain number of cows in the field, the productivity goes down because there, there isn't enough space for them or, or enough resource. So at the moment, we think we're above carrying. We're, we're above. We don't know how far above, but we think we're above carrying capacity. Um, so we have really good densities of juveniles, but they're clearly not coming back from the sea. So mm. whereas if you look at, so that that that's the background decline. There's this big background decline, and they think the food. The feed the, the the fish are having to swim further north to reach their feeding grounds because our, our fish tend to go to the Norwegian Sea or the or to Greenland 
um, Western Greenland, they think the Scottish fish go to the big, the multi sea winter fish. Um, and they reckon in the north, the, the Norwegian sea, the sea temperature has risen significantly. So the salmon are having to swim further to get to the feeding grounds, which mm. messes up their, their, their whole system and, and they're coming into contact with other fish species and competing with other fish species. Whereas the hatchery program we were talking about is on the, our River Gary, which has been heavily impacted by. Um, hydro and and aquaculture and mismanagement to be honest in the past from the fisheries perspective as well and what we've done there i mean there, there used to be there's a fish counter in the dam um there and there used to be in the 1960s up to 900 salmon a year adult salmon would go through and the last count was 27 fish that was it so so that that's been impact yeah that's been impacted by the the background decline but also specific catchment level declines so what we've been doing is addressing those issues and rather than all point the finger at each other the hydro the aquaculture ourselves all saying it's your fault we've got together and we're working on this project together to try and address it and um and so we're not we're not just catching the adult fish and stripping them we there's not enough adults to do that and the ones that are going back we're leaving them to get on with it themselves so what we're doing is catching smolts on the way out, which are the juvenile salmon going to sea, mm-hmm. and we're growing them in fresh water to adults, um, and we're genetically profiling them all. So we know uh, just in that one subcatchment, we know there's four distinct populations of salmon that are genetically distinct completely. So we 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 only cross them within those groups, and we we know there's no um, f- fish of farmed origin in there because we test for that and we also know they're not brothers and sisters we test for siblings so we know we're not crossing brothers and sisters so we're going to quite a high level it's quite mm. it's a million pound project over about 10 years but um we're going to quite a high level and we're only doing it for a limited period just to kickstart the population while we deal with the other issues um which we we are doing as well so um so yeah that's fascinating so when, someone, when, when someone stands below the dam that dam and takes a salmon um, they call it one for the pot is what they call it here. Oh, it's okay. It's just one for the pot, but that could be one of 27 fish, mm. which is a significant impact on the, on the <laughs> population. And so do it, doing what we do and doing the management, the science and the enforcement gives us a, a good overview of everything, you know? Right. Uh, absolutely. But that's just fascinating. The gene, the DNA, the looking at the, that type of stuff and profiling for it. That's uh that's brilliant actually. Uh, the the former lieutenant I worked for, he always said that the hatchery fish were just dumb, so they were just they were easy mm-hmm. to grow and they were dumb fish, so they couldn't survive in the wild, uh, just because of their yeah. genes. And now you're looking at that, yeah. you're you're profiling, so you don't have any hatchery fish. You're getting the actual fish that are there, even though there's 27 of them. Yeah. Oh my goodness! I just uh, yeah, and uh, no, it's it's yeah it's that's the thing is what you're trying to do is mitigate there are there's always an impact with a hatchery and and if it's not well thought out and it's not the right circumstances then it can have a significant negative impact so what we what you do is you assess for each each situation is different but the situation on on the river gary where we are is is at the point where it calls for an intervention and you have to go through and mitigate the impact so we for the other thing we do is we we don't stock as we don't stock juvenile fish. We stock the eggs. So we plant eggs into the gravel. And the idea of that is it minimizes the time in the hatchery. Mm. And um, so that they're more streetwise. So if they're, if they're swimming yes. around in a tank for a while first, they're not going to behave naturally when you put them in the river. So this this enables them to hatch in the wild. The first food they have is wild food. Um, and a colleague of ours on a neighboring river has gone a step further and he's stocking he's doing the same process catching smolts growing them onto adults and he's releasing the adults back into the river rather than the eggs to get as 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 early as possible but we wouldn't be able to do that where we stop because it's too in, inaccessible we'd have to get a helicopter in or something like that to do it which we couldn't afford so yeah no that, that's 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 brilliant actually but how do you gauge the success rate on that as far as eggs yeah. hatching and so we've got we part of for us to get we have to get permission from the Scottish government to do all this. So we have to put in a, a plan, uh, and a, part of that is a is a monitoring plan. And and it, on that particular water, it consists of monitoring juvenile populations, monitoring adult returns through the through the fish counter. Now we have a counter which is good because we can look for any changes in the trends, and also 
when we do the juvenile surveys, we take a genetic sample from each juvenile so that we can then look at whether those fish are originated from our restoration project or whether they originated from wild fish. Because we've got the genetic profiles of all the adults, we can tell whether the juveniles came from our program or not as well. Ah. So, yeah, so that gives us, and it's very important we do that because if it doesn't work, right. we need to tell others that it didn't work. You know, that that's that everything these days things have to be monitored. In the past, people would just stock and leave them, yeah, and then nobody knows whether it worked or not, yeah, you know. <laughs> No, that's that's and that's what I was getting to. And have you done this enough so you have actually tested for that and see that it, you're being successful? So no, so no, not yet because it. Well, we're well, we're, te- we're taking samples, but okay. this year will be the first year that any of the fish came back from the, this program. Okay, so um, and, and they will have only come back in low numbers because the first the first year we didn't put very many eggs into the system. So this this is a this is a twenty year project. This is going to take a lot of time it's going to be monitored mm. for that whole period yeah um, so we're gonna we'll only be introducing fish for another couple of years and we're going to stop and then we'll just keep monitoring going forward so so it'll be interesting to see how it turns out the juvenile num- we, we've been monitoring juvenile numbers and they are there's definitely an improvement in the juvenile numbers but that doesn't mean anything yet that, that doesn't you mean more it's fishing, from you. you're going to get more yeah. <laughs> well, it, well it, it, it it probably is and we'll, yeah. we'll be able to test that when we get the, when we get the genetic samples and a lot of it was devoid of fish completely devoid so you've got areas that were devoid i've now got fish in them okay and and good densities of fish but um that doesn't the success is when they return as adults not when they're juveniles because they have to get all the way back out right system so yeah yeah no that that, that's pretty awesome that that the extent you guys are going to it's really important too i think looking back at like what we've done in the hatchery programs especially we've just grown fish and throw them out there and hope for the best assuming that maybe they're going to live and maybe we we don't assume they live and maybe it's just a put and take fishery type thing but in the u.s we have um at least on the eastern side of the, the country we have definitely acclimated our fishermen to our hatcheries so it's it's mm-hmm. you know they're stocking they're fishing they're catching and it's 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 yeah it's circular i guess in in motion do we expect those fish to survive not really not really i think most stocked fish don't survive and don't cycle through and it's probably their genetic profile yeah it's a big it's a big debate here as well i mean people would like us to do more stocking in more parts of the system Mm -hmm. but the data the data doesn't support that at the moment and because the juvenile densities are good and if you were to stock on top of it, what all you'd end up doing was taking fish out of the river Displacing that would have done fish. it themselves. Mm. Well, they would have done it themselves and produced a good quality fish. Whereas if you take them out and put them into a hatchery, uh, the, as soon as you do that, you're uh, impacting on their survival. So you should only do it, in, well, in my opinion, you should only really do it if there's a real critical issue. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a last resort, which it, for us on the Gary is absolutely a last resort because we're concerned about losing the fish up there, you know, completely. Um, so, um, but yeah, but our, our anglers are good. We They put last year, 93% of the rod caught salmon were released, which is really, really good for us. Yeah. Um, uh, there have been years, there's been years where a hundred percent have been released as well. So we're really grateful to our anglers for doing that as well. Cause mm. everybody wants to take a fish. I mean, everybody likes a bit of salmon, but yeah. they understand that everyone, everyone's plays the part to try and protect the fish. Yeah. Especially when you're putting so much into it, all, all fish, I would say most fishermen, most hunters are so much conservationists in that they uh, take so much pride in everything. And uh, you must, there must be a lot of fly fishing up there. Cause that's kind of where fly fishing originated was uh, yeah. Scotland area and uh, pr- probably right in your neck of the woods, I would imagine. Yeah, it did. The spay, spay casting was, well, spay casting was from the river Spay, you know, with the double-handed salmon fly rods, but um, it was developed um, actually on the river Ness. And we have a whole number of world champion distance fly casters on the river Ness because it's a very big, wide hmm. river system. Um so, so quite a, well, a number of our gillies are, are world or ex world champions. Um, so yeah, it's mainly fly fishing, but we do do, do some spinning as well. Um, like Toby's, you know, I don't know if you call them Toby's, but um, spinners. Um, uh, but yeah, it's mainly fly fishing for salmon here. And the world, there is a bit of bait fishing goes on, but there's regulations, um, le- um, legal regulations about what bait you can use. Mm-hmm. So in the old days, they used to use a lot of pro- a lot of shrimps or prawns, which are dried um prawns but they've they're completely legal on the river ness 
and there's you can fish with worms at certain times of year up to a certain point on the river system as well so but they're all conservation measures mm, interesting that's you know the regulations are usually conservation measurements or have uh social impacts as well uh why we you know yeah. do that why we do limits why we do certain areas are fly fishing only for us uh you know certain areas are catch and release slot limits so all of those things are managed yeah. tools but i just i i love that you do everything and i, I think it's a, it's it makes you well balanced uh you catch a, a poacher with uh one of your 27 trout that that, that takes uh yeah that, that 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 heightens it doesn't it that or salmon um is it, it does you know and you know that there's only it, it 27 returning it does i mean we've i mean i've sat there and watched um with a <laughs> as part of a team watching people poach and um <laughs> what i what, what i see uh, obviously caught, caught them afterwards yes, but yes. we i we, we we watched not long not that long ago we watched a group of people fishing below a dam and they took one after another and we were filming them to get evidence before we moved in on them because yeah. we what, what we like to do is get the evidence first mm-hmm. because uh, you'll probably be aware people are very good at lying to you when <laughs> they're when they're cornered so it's always good to get we we'll always try and gather information before we move in to, to somebody. And for me, when I'm looking at these fish, I'm not thinking of a fish. I'm thinking of eggs and mm. you see a size of a fish, you know, roughly, roughly how many eggs are going to be in that fish if it's a female and then, the, and the potential impact of that. So when we do our, our case files, if we catch, if we catch poach people poaching and um, we'll put an impact statement as well as a, you know, a, a witness statement and an impact statement in the file to, to try and, get across to the courts the the impact both from a conservation perspective and from an economic perspective on taking the what 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 taking those fish can have so yeah that place i was talking about the gary i've been down there and seen um evidence of poaching and it and it it just upset you because you there's such a lot of effort going in by so many people to uh, protect that fishery and then somebody comes along and sneaks in and um and takes a fish and yeah, you'll see scales on the bank where where they've they've, they've clearly killed a fish, mm-hmm. and um and there'll be like prawns or whatever illegal bait there, and it and it's you know you take it it's 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 sad to see that when there's so much work going in by so many people, you know. Right, that's got to get you uh, even more when you're watching those and doing this surveillance and you're watching this go on, and then you know when you approach those people, is it generally ignorance they claim or a lot a lot of our, so so last year we had. On the nest system, we had 152 incidents uh, on the nest system, uh, illegal fishing incidents, uh, of which only 12 of those we took to the courts. So, a lot of those are some of them are ignorant. Some people just don't know, and you you generally can figure out pretty quickly whether they don't know, and they would be dealt with by means of a verbal warning. Other people um maybe chance in it but it may not be a particularly serious offense so and it might be a first offense so in which case we'd probably give them a we caution them uh, and give them a warning under caution so a formal warning and then for the ones that were um serious like serious incidents or multi, or um you know repeat um offenses then then we would charge them so out of that is it 12 charges and out of 152 incidents but 152 incidents for a when there's only four of us in our team that cover, as I say, over a thousand, well, one and a half thousand square miles is, um, it's quite a lot of work. And um, mm-hmm. when we're doing all the other stuff as well, it's, it happens. There's regularly, there's regularly illegal fishing going on. Um, but some people are, you, you get the old school poachers, which you probably get over in America as well. You get the old um, rom- romantic poachers. And there was an incident I had, um, on a coastal a coastal net and we get quite a lot of gill netting here illegally, which, um, you can't gill net for salmon, um, in in scotland um and what the where 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 i was working at that point i'll anonymize it but where i was working at that point um we used to do patrols on on a rib on a on a patrol boat and we'd be looking for for nets set along the coast and it was a very rocky shore and it went straight down to about 100 feet depth so which is quite a difficult spot for and it's very exposed coast as well so it's quite a difficult spot to set a net but we were getting um information of people um fishing illegally so we went out on a boat patrol and we happened across a pulley system and it's quite unbelievable i don't know if you've ever come across anything like this yourself but what they were doing is that they'd put an anchor about 30 meters out onto the bed of the sea and they'd run a piece of paracord just a narrow piece of paracord through the anchor 
and then back to the shore further down. And they would go down and they'd attach the net to one end and then pull the other end like a curtain. So it went out like a curtain. And then when they wanted to pull it in, they'd just pull the, the end back in. So on this particular occasion, we found this pulley system um, where there was no net attached to it. So we tried to land the boat on the against the cliffs to see w- whether they'd stashed anything, but it was too rough to get the boat close in. So we um, we came back r- back into shore and about it took us about two hours, and then we hiked out onto these cliffs, which were in the middle of nowhere. And as we got there, we, these two guys were walking down to where the net, the pulley system was, and they had a bag, and you could see a gill net in the bag. So we thought, right, we'll bet we they're not committing an offence at that point because you don't know what they're fishing for. Mm-hmm. And then part of our role is we have to prove intent. So you have to prove right. what fish. they're fishing for. So, so we let them fish. We we watched, and then we we left, and we came back at three in the morning, and um, sat waiting and then about an hour later they appeared so at four in the morning just before daylight and we we couldn't quite get the angle to watch what they were doing so we watched them pull this net in and um they were down there for a little while and then they walked came back up and they had a bag over the shoulder and you could see the shape of salmon in at least three salmon in this in this bag and we'd called the police in the meantime because we were we were collecting evidence we were watching them and filming them so we got enough evidence and uh we called the police and the policeman hid, hid waiting for these guys, but he left his patrol car out in the open. Oh, <laughs> like, man. And over here, the patrol cars are quite obvious. And um, so by the time they'd got to him, that they didn't have this bag of fish anymore. So we thought, they've got away with this. We're not, we're, we're not going to get them. And we spent about an hour searching this property, looking for these fish. We couldn't uh-huh. find them. So we went, we went back to the point where they'd, um, where they'd pull the net in, and we found the net stashed in the in in the rocks so they tried to hide it and we found it and it was a piece of carpet that they'd used to pull the net over so the fish weren't damaged and it was covered in salmon scales so we what the law over here says it says uh, illegal possession of a salmon or any part thereof <laughs> so we managed to take scale some we took the scale samples and we an- had them analyzed and we found that they were from seven different fish because each scale is like um, wow. is like a fingerprint they're um they're unique to the particular fish and they got prosecuted on the basis of of that, which was which was good, really. You know, yes. um, obviously with the other evidence we collected, but that, that's yeah. a great so case. It's just, it's, I, guess, I guess it's forensics in a way. I guess, yeah, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So you got to get a fish dog too. So you can find. Yeah, we don't, we don't have dog. Yeah, we don't have dogs here. I know one of our guys has dogs. They're not they're not like trained dogs, but he's one of his dogs, the Labrador, can sniff out salmon, but. Um, we don't have dogs as such here, but when I worked in in England, um, I went. Well, it was England and Wales at the time, and I did go and work for a week in Wales to get some experience when I was younger. And they did have a dog team there, and it's what you call a home office trained dog here, which is a police trained dog. And they used to have them in the ba- in the water bailiffs team, and that was that dog was brilliant. And mm. it, it was the it was an Alsatian, like a German Shepherd, and it was it looked. I was like that dog's soft. It looks it doesn't look very tough. And then he just <laughs> said, "Speak." put its paws on my shoulders (laughs) but they very very rarely had to use it because all they had to do is say stop or let the dog go and the the people would come out with that so they're a great tool but we don't have them Uh, that would be great so put put that on the list for the nest we we need a canine fish dog well because i the dogs are worth their weight in gold uh for sure the their their noses or he would have found those salmon for you but and you know but that that you bring up a great point is when you don't have those tools you move to other tools you move to the forensic side of it when we don't and and we don't have dog we never had dogs until recently really and uh yeah they they fill Mm -hmm. in that spot where we would have to spend a lot of time a lot of people power not as effective and then maybe rely on forensics to to bring that to bring that home and let, let's face it judges love forensics courts love forensics because it's very specific yeah. very detailed and that that's that's you know the fundamental of a lot of great cases is forensic science and uh you know seven fish were definitely yeah. there 100 percent. i'm sure they had no problem yeah. convicting and, them um and, and on that on that um, subject as well, it's all about collecting your evidence. I mean, that's a major part of our job as well is making sure we do this correctly. And um, it, and it is difficult. I mean, people don't realize how much work is involved in pulling a case file together and getting a successful prosecution. You know, it's so easy 
um, to get it wrong. And particularly with wildlife offences, they're very hard to prove. You know, so you have to you have to make sure you've got your got your evidence. Um, don't go. We don't go rushing in there. You have to really make sure that you've you know exactly what's happening at the time and exactly where the fish are. I mean, I think all of us have have had experiences where you know someone's been doing something and you've you can't find the evidence and there's nothing more frustrating um you know and uh, so over time you learn to um I think they call it the old bull and the young bull you don't go rushing in there do you you just go, you've got to just observe and see what's going on before you before you go down and and move in absolutely so. and that surveillance to to let them make evidence and then you can collect it and can you bring us through a a court case in Scotland I know we're based uh here on, in north america more in the united states based on english but i'm sure canada is based similar to your your process too but i just it's funny where bailiffs uh fisheries bailiffs just uh our bailiffs are in the court we still have that terminology but it seems like a little yeah. different role and then where they came from yeah. and what they do so so we have we have court bailiffs here as well which is di- different but basically the procedure for us is if we have and in, say we have an incident, we find someone fishing illegally who's completely compliant, but they're fishing illegally. So we would say, the first thing we do is caution them. You do not have to say anything, but anything you do say will be noted and maybe used as evidence. And then you collect the information from them, the name and address, um, which is the key thing. So you can identify them. Um, and then any evidence surrounding the the case. So it might be body camera evidence. It might be um, video camera evidence. It might just be what they've said and you've recorded in your notebook. Um it might be you've seized a rod off them um, with a certain an illegal bait or whatever. So then we 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 can um, report directly to the courts ourselves, but we tend not to these days. We 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 could, but we don't. So what we generally do is that we then go to the police and we tell the police that we've had an had an incident uh, and we've we've collected the information and we've told the individual that they're going to be reported, um, and then working with the police, we'll put together a case file case file goes to what's called the procurator fiscal which is the 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 government's prosecutor i guess um and then it most of our offenses would go to the what they call the sheriff's court so and the the courts in scotland are very different to the courts in england where i used to work and they're, they're called magistrates court in in england but in here they're called the sheriffs so a sheriff in scotland is not the chief of police a sheriff in scotland is a basically a judge um uh and so most of our cases would get would go to that. So usually within a year, if we have an incident, it's usually within a year that the, the, the case will go to court. So ours are all dealt with in court. So there's no fixed penalty notices or anything. Ours is all currently is all um, is all, all got, they all go to court if they plead not guilty. If they plead guilty, then they'll get fined or they might get a warning. And you can get a police warning, a procurator fiscal warning, or a magistrate or a court court warning. Um, or you can get various levels of fines. And I think for us, it's up to about three and a half thousand pounds um, fine. That's pound sterling. Um, I don't know what that is in dollars. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking more that. In dollars. Um, <laughs> yeah. And then for certain offences, you can, um, there can be um, prison time as well for certain offences, but that's very, very rare that anyone would go to prison for a fisheries offence unless they're, you know, um, con- persistent offenders. Let's say quite um, all 27 even then, salmon we ha- left. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> or, or, I mean, we've had people, we have people that we've caught multiple times that haven't gone to court to prison, but, um, you know, so, so yeah, I mean, there's, there's pros and cons to the Scottish way in some respect. I mean, there is talk about bringing a fixed, fi- bringing in fixed penalty notices, which means you can issue a ticket there and then. Um, but, um, in some respects that takes away, um, the severity of it and what it can mm-hmm. do, but um, that we're not at that point yet, but that's being discussed at the moment. Jeez, I find this stuff fascinating, Chris. Every time we, we talk about something, we move on and, uh, you know, talking about bailiffs and stuff, I had to look it up. I Googled that too. And there is differences, you know, it mm-hmm. talks about the sheriff's officer uh, on the, on the, the British side and yeah. And ours is basically a court uh, yep. bailiff, which is interesting. And game wardens are the same warden. You know, we have our correction wardens and that's sometimes confused with a game warden because we like wardens watch. Yeah. I, I never said game wardens watch it's wardens watch podcast. So 
Uh, and, and it's really interesting that yeah. uh, that most uh, sportsmen gravitate to that name. Pennsylvania just did a study because they, they just rebranded as Game Wardens in Pennsylvania, but they actually put some science behind it. They, they, did a, they went out there and asked, uh, surveyed, you know, conservation officer, game warden, uh, conservation police, and more related to understanding what the game warden was. So they rebranded as Game Wardens, which uh, is very encouraging yeah. that, you know, we're having that impact. Uh, so it's yeah big. yeah so we so the, the over here as well so we water bailiff is an old term and a lot of people well you do get bailiff you get water bailiffs and then you get bailiffs who are debt collectors as well so if you fail to mm. pay your mortgage on your house the bailiffs can go and repossess it but and that's a very different bailiff to what we are and then you get court bailiffs that are crown court bailiffs who um will you know collect debts on behalf of the the courts um there's bailiff there's, there's bailiffs can mean a lot of things but we are a water bailiff which is different but there has been talk of us rebranding as fishery officer um and a lot of a lot of people so for example my team my latest member of my team is his job title is fisheries officer it's not water bailiff in the past he would have been called a water bailiff but we call him a fisheries officer but when he introduces himself to an angler he has to introduce himself as a water bailiff because that's the legal capacity so until the legislation actually changes, you will, we will continue to be a, a water bailiff. So my job title, my actual job title is not water bailiff, but I am a water bailiff, if that makes sense. That's part when I'm doing my enforcement work. Yeah, it's just fascinating and the, like the changes and everything that happens. But that's uh, thanks for clarifying. I think it's neat. I think it's neat being a game warden. I think it's neat that you're a water bailiff. And the history that goes behind it, too, uh, I just think... Uh, that in 1933, it was a water bailiff that, that, that saw Nessie out there swimming in the lock. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. So I just, I just it, think it's I, I mean, I, I, I think the cool thing for us over here is as well as there's obviously a lot of the TV programs over in America that cover uh, game wardens, and I'll watch those, and it's basically the, the same job, and it's right. the same type of poaching. And you quite often mm-hmm. you look at that and you think, like, that's that we've I've had that, I've come across that. Um, so it's it's universal. It's very very. We do a very similar job, and we come across very similar types of poaching and very similar incidents and very similar characters as well yes. when you watch them. So it's quite it's, it's quite good. We don't get enough of that over here. That TV over here, unfortunately. Well, I think the Warden's Watch listeners are going to be very excited to to hear from you from across the pond and in Scotland and at a very, very famous lock at, at that. Yeah, so I really appreciate you, Chris. Uh, anything else? I always say this is as much your your program as it is mine, you know, whether you're a water bailiff or a game warden. Uh, that's uh, if you have anything in closing. No, just thanks very much for having me. Um, it's great to talk to you. It's really interesting. It's always good to talk, and it's good to to speak to people over the pond as well and see what's going on over there. So, yeah, that's great. Thank you. No, well, we really appreciate it. You know, part, like you said, part of the, our job is educating, talking to people. And that's kind of what this podcast is about. It's about t- teaching people to do the right thing first. And if they have questions, reach out and get the right answers so you're not in violation unintentionally. Uh, and it sounds like it goes both ways on this side of the ocean and that side of the ocean. So uh, we probably brought that over too from you. <laughs> Excellent. Thank you so much, Chris. Chris Conroy, Scotland. Water Bailiff on Loch Ness. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch.